You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to a special edition of the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, in this special episode, we talk about Trump and the age of ignorance. My guest today is Rachel McKinnon, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at the College of Charleston, who has also appeared on episode six of the Unmute podcast. And I also have Mina Krishna Murphy, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, who has also appeared on episode 13 of the Unmute podcast. In this episode, we talk about the epistemology of ignorance, its role in the election, how to overcome and survive it, the future role of media, and much more. Welcome you all to the Unmute Podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for organizing. Thank you. (laughs) All right. So I I guess what we can begin doing is is get this question out the way, more of an update, a self-care update. What are your reactions to the election results? And tell me one of your worries about the upcoming Trump presidency. I guess we can begin with Mina. Oh, that's a hard one. I mean, I think the truth of the matter, I just, you know, to be completely honest, is I'm still processing. On one hand, I was definitely that person who woke up on the day of the election. I felt sick to my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, and in part, that was because I kind of knew it was coming. I went outside and in Michigan here. It was a very gloomy day. Everyone on campus was already depressed, you know, at nine o'clock in the morning. I think many of us felt like it was coming. And yet I'm still somehow mm-hmm. shocked. So I knew it was coming, but I still feel shocked, you know, that it's an actual reality. So I think I'm still processing, just trying to figure it out. Some people may say, well, you all are just sad and shocked because you're your person lost, right? This is just the result of just losing in general. Mina, what is what is your worry? Where does your emotion stem from? What is your worry about a Trump presidency? Yeah, I mean, I mean, for me, I should say that, like, I it's not that my person lost. I mean, first, I haven't been like a diehard Clinton supporter. I had worries, lots of worries about Clinton all the way. Um, So that isn't really my problem per se. I mean, yes, it's horrible that Clinton lost, but she wasn't like my person. And I think I, I say that because I think a lot of people of color, women of color, you know, in some sense, resisted that idea and I just want that to be out there but um, you know my worry I mean it's kind of twofold the obvious things are like the legal ramifications of what's going to come but that's more long term right Mm -hmm. I think most of us I mean I'm certainly worried about just like day to day what's happening in terms of what becomes the norm of how we interact with other people what is now legitimized um, in day to day interactions Um, and at least here in Ann Arbor Michigan I mean which is considered you know a very progressive like college town we're already seeing a kind of backlash there have already been um, you know what the university is calling and what I would call as well hate crimes as well so uh, that's what I that was my biggest fear that this kind of behavior becomes legitimized and I'm worried that it will become part of the norm in fact yeah I I really share all the worries that Mina has but also um, like I have more immediate worries about these legal issues Um, so on the one hand, I'm Canadian. I didn't have a candidate, so I can't be upset because my candidate (laughs) lost. I'm not allowed to vote. Um, so my worries are really all on the ground. What does this mean? Um, so I'm also worried about the day-to-day normalization of hate, harassment, um, particularly for, uh, people of color, for queer people and visibly queer people, 
Um, for disabled people, there's just there's so much hate already happening, but uh, some of the legal issues I'm worried about are things that he can do on day one. So he's pledged to repeal many or all of Obama's executive orders, one of which provides uh, guidance on trans rights, specifically in education. So I am a trans woman. Um, I'm a queer woman. I'm an immigrant. These things can impact me legally on day one. So like that's one of my primary worries. So I, I'm in Charleston, South Carolina. It's the South. Um, we have our problems here. But I've never felt physically unsafe until now. And I, I feel physically unsafe. There are many that are trying to make sense of how this happened, and you all share a consensus that an epistemology of ignorance explains part of it. Rachel, tell us, what is an epistemology of ignorance, and how did you see it play out in the election? So it, it's hard to say that there's a consensus on what epistemology of ignorance concerns itself with. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you sort of my short story. Uh, epistemology of ignorance sort of concerns itself partly with how is it that certain forms of ignorance can be active and can maintain themselves on the one hand, but also can do that in the face of what we take to be overwhelming counter evidence. So for example, a claim that we saw play out over a long period of time over multiple elections is that Obama is a Muslim, Obama was not born in the United States. Well, you can point to as much evidence as we can, and people will still maintain that belief. And so the epistemology of ignorance asks that question, like, how is it that someone can maintain these false beliefs in the face of these conditions? My thinking on how the epistemology of ignorance played some role in this outcome, I'm thinking in terms of Helen Longino's work on social knowledge. So she talks about knowledge production in science, but I think this applies to what we might call the epistemology of democracy. So she has these four norms that she thinks has to be the case in order for the epistemology of science to work, and I'm saying this applies to democracy. So the first is that there have to be public and open venues for discussion and debate. And I think that in the election, we've had more than ever before. Right? So there are more avenues, thanks to the internet, to have open discussions. So that's, that's a good thing. But the second norm is that there has to be uptake of criticism. So if we hold a belief about something, our beliefs have to be somehow responsive to evidence and counter evidence. They have to be sensitive to what other people are responding to our beliefs with. And if we're presented with actual counter evidence, we have to change our beliefs. That's something I've seen fail lately in a rather catastrophic way. The third is that there have to be public standards of evidence and reasoning. So we have to agree upon like when a fact is a fact. And that's another place where we've seen catastrophic failure. Mm -hmm. If you show people, for example, to return to Obama is not born in the United States, you show his birth certificate and they just deny that it's genuine. And then you talk to people who were in the office or in the hospital of the birth and they're like but they have reason to lie <laughs> right so people are just completely rejecting what constitutes a fact then the fourth norm is what she calls tempered equality so everyone's beliefs matter 
but some matter more than others. So there has to be recognition that there are experts on certain topics. So people with particular training, you ask a, a pharmacist about your medications, you don't ask a random person on the street, right? So we, we have to recognize that there are experts and that expert opinion matters. Unfortunately, that's another problem. So I, in discussions and discussions I've seen about the election, people just reject that there are better opinions than others, right? That there might be expertise worth listening to. And we saw that play out disastrously in the Brexit vote. People explicitly rejected expert testimony. So one thing I've seen are the conditions for discourse in a deliberative democracy have failed to be satisfied. And so ignorance won, and the epistemology of ignorance can explain this. Yeah, so I think uh, my approach is probably fairly different. So um, I guess minimally, I'll say that, you know, just starting with the question of sort of what is epistemology, the ignorance, I, I think Rachel and I think of it in the same way. I guess one thing I'd say is that in part, um, epistemology of ignorance is a reaction to traditional ways of doing epistemology. So epistemology is just the study of doing of, of knowledge, right, theories of knowledge. But then epistemologies of ignorance is trying to ask almost the opposite or reverse question, which is sort of what is the lack of knowledge. So what is ignorance and what are the conditions, as Rachel said, that give rise to it? And how do we get sort of knowledge gaps, so to speak? And so for me, I mean, the question that I've been really trying to grapple with, both like intellectually and also like in terms of talking with my students and things that we're grappling with here at, at Michigan, is really this question of, okay, so most people realize that Trump ha has racist views. Now, what's actually happening, given the fact that people have actually voted for Trump in spite of that? And so I think the, these kind of like theories of ignorance can actually give us some answers to some of these questions. And so most of my work draws on the work of, well, at least recent work, draws on the work of Dr. King. And so Dr. King kind of points out that there are two types of ignorances that are actually happening here. One of which is just there's a kind of, of, of a lack of knowledge of, of the, the fact that, you know, racism is morally wrong. So there's just a belief in the superiority of the white race. Now, where does that belief come from? I mean, in part, King says very clearly that it's a rationalization to rationalize certain forms of economic exploitation. So he's thinking about slavery. So, you know, one way to kind of justify slavery and say that it's, it's okay is to say, well, we're a superior race. We should order the world so that some people are slaves and some people aren't, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so some of it is just like a rationalization, but all, fundamentally there's a group of people who doesn't know that, or doesn't believe that racism is wrong. So that's, you know, one kind of ignorance, but for King, that's really just like not the main form of ignorance that he's concerned with because he thinks that most people, uh, you know, believe that racism is wrong, but they're just not motivated to do anything about that. So then again, this raises the question, okay, so a bunch of people know that racism is wrong and they voted for Trump. Well, how do we kind of reconcile those things, given that Trump is, in a, is pretty explicitly racist? And part of that just has to do with priorities of values, right? So you see people saying, in fact, uh, the regent of Michigan is a Republican, and he clearly said, look, I'm not a racist, but I'm an economic conservative. Other people say, you know, I have certain views about tax policy. I have certain views about climate change, perhaps. Now, and what people are saying, in a sense, is they're saying, well, you know, look, racism is wrong, but I have all these other things that I value, and then I'm giving priority to those. Mm -hmm. So part of it is then explaining why is that the case? And then King gives us a bit of a different answer here, which is that, look, it's not enough to just know that racism is wrong. You actually have to know what it's like to be victimized by that wrong. 
And that's actually the way of overcoming that gap in a sense. And so once you know what it's like to be victimized by racism, you can no longer actively and explicitly support a racist policy. In other words, that experience of what it's like reorders your values. And now, you know, your anti-racism, your anti-racist values are kind of at the top. So in a sense, there's like an experiential knowledge or an experience-based form of knowledge that actually will close the gap. And so maybe that's what people are lacking. Is, is it possible, though? I mean, you know, I, I hate to, to be an, a pessimist here. Is it really possible to put other people's needs in front of our own? Because it seems as if, if indeed I know that this individual embodies kind of this racist ideology or homophobic rhetoric or whatever the case may be, but I still have my needs as a citizen. Right. And if this person is willing to address my needs as a citizen, I may risk the needs of others. Right. Are we striving for an idea that is just an idea or isn't it possible even given our weaknesses, (laughs) even our own desires? Is it possible for us to reorder it in that way? Yeah. So, I mean, this is the question that I've really been thinking a lot about and that I'm actively working on. So. Because for at least me, when I'm thinking about King, part of the gap is this like experience-based gap. The question then is, look, if what you need to be motivated is to have a kind of experiential basis for empathy, for kind of, you know, you have to, through experience, you come to know what it's like, and then having that knowledge is what motivates you by reorienting or reprioritizing your desires or values. So then the question for me is really like, how do you close that experiential gap? And is there any way of doing so? Um, And I mean, I have some optimistic views about this in the sense that, you know, I think part of it is that, and this is why I think that philosophical arguments aren't enough, frankly. It's not enough to know through rational inference on the basis of true premises that, you know, racism is wrong. We need something more than that. And so King in the tradition of Frederick Douglass and W.E.B. Du Bois really wants to say that, you know, this is in some ways where narrative performance the arts more broadly because it's not mediated in this other kind of way it's like a direct experience and the hope is by using these other platforms we can kind of stimulate i would say you know or you know simulate these experiences in other people and then in turn over you know exposure to multitudes of kinds of experiences motivation will happen and so this is why i think black lives matter you know in terms of thinking the emphasis on videos of police murder police um assaults uh, and violence against unarmed black men and women it's following the tradition of the civil rights which is the keep it before the people movement we keep it in front of the people they have these experiences we see people being beaten we have emotions and experiences in a sense of what it is like and that moves us and i think we're seeing that actively work i think a lot of people galvanize behind black lives matter because of the prevalence of these videos so i think that's one example of a broader phenomenon that could be used to to motivate people to take action the other thing i would say and we can talk about how possible this actually is and i you know taking this from the tradition of people like rousseau and gandhi which is the thought that we have to create a kind of collective identity a true we And when we can start not thinking of ourselves as like an individual self, but a broader we and what's in our collective best interest, then then we're facing a different set of questions and problems. So in a sense, it's like, but how do we create that? And then again, I'm going to just want to point to social movements. I think one of the other purposes of social movements is to bring us together. We act together over over time, maybe years. Uh, We form a kind of a solidaristic relationship and a collective identity. And in turn, we come to empathize with other people um, and see their suffering as our own. And hopefully that moves us, too. So that that leads to the next question. Rachel, how do you think it's how would you suggest for us to overcome as a moral agent? I am not an optimist. I, I agree with Mina that experiential knowledge matters a lot. 
um, in how we need to move forward. But I'm not an optimist in people who don't have various relevant marginalized identities gaining that knowledge. By being the sort of person who struggles against forms of oppression, by bumping up against those forms of oppression, we come to sort of see the forms of oppression and also sort of what it feels like to experience them, and then what would be good ways to overcome them. And if you're not the sort of person to have those experiences, you're going to struggle mightily to even recognize that those sorts of oppressions exist, what they look like, what counts as being oppressed, right? what counts as even racist is something that people still struggle with, right? You you point to, for example, a black veteran having his meal taken away because a white person at a Chili's, this just happened, um, says, I don't think that person's a veteran. Well, unless you're the sort of person who experiences that over and over and over again, you might not even understand that it's racism. So I agree that experience matters, but if you're not the right sort of person or you don't have the relevant identities, you're not going to get that experience. So these sort of epistemic transformations, the ability at the level of even perception to perceive oppressions as a happening is going to be hard for certain people. For example, you know, white people. So the way that I think we go forward is not by hoping that people will have these experiences, but by highlighting the need to trust other people's reports of their experiences. So this highlights the need to trust other people's testimony. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen. Right now, we still see widespread discounting of people's testimony, right? So the default attitude is to doubt when something happens. For example, there was a, a recent blog post titled something like Academia Love Me Back, where a Latina student had written a beautiful paper, but she used language like hints. And the professor underlined the word saying, this is not your word, and accused the student of plagiarizing. Well, I, I talked about this in my philosophy class, and one of my students just immediately doubted that this actually happened, right? This sort of the default attitude when people talk about oppressions happening to them is to doubt. And that's not how we overcome this, right? We have to increase our trust in people's reports of their experiences and the what it's like of living under oppression. And it seems as if, you know, to add kind of to how we overcome it, I mean, I'm not an epistemologist in any, any regard, but, you know, I was talking before about selfishness and how we prioritize what should be the values or what should be the interests. And I think in a democratic society, I mean, you know, Daniel Allen has written about this, about how this notion of sacrifices, right? We all have to equally kind of make sacrifices. That's part of the democratic project. And it seems as if those who are oppressed makes more sacrifices than those who are privileged. And it just may be the case that we have as our interests, these economic interests, et cetera. But it seems as if we have to figure out that even given those interests, we may have to sacrifice those for a greater goal, right, for other people. So I think it's just a realization as well, to add to this, a realization as well, that we just have to sacrifice sometimes. We can't always get what we want. And I don't think that a democracy is all or nothing kind of, kind of game. We win some, we lose some. But it's sad when the same people just keep losing. <laughs> and I think that we can we can sacrifice in that in that regard. So we've been talking about how the moral agent themselves can overcome epistemology of ignorance. What would you say for those who are recipients or those who in some way will suffer as a result of someone 
um, someone's ignorance, how would you suggest for them to survive it, Mina? Yeah, I don't know that I have like deep things to say about this, honestly, in the sense that I don't know. I think really this is part the part that I'm still trying to work out in the sense of, you know, for those who are living these experiences and how to kind of cope with them is maybe just through forms of community. I think like, you know, engaging with other people, struggling with other people. And some of us, I, you know, I mean, as I think Maisha rightly pointed out recently, you know, people have different reactions. And some of us are dealing with this by allowing us ourselves time to grieve. Some of us are organizing. Some of us are sticking our head deeper in our work. Um, and those are all coping mechanisms. So I, I think at this point, maybe the main thing I'm just thinking of now is like coping uh, is like the main thing to do just at least initially while we kind of pull ourselves up and think about what the best form of, of action to do is. And I, I'm sort of reticent to lay down like some like concrete suggestion about what I think, you know, people uh, particularly who be victimized by these kinds of hateful acts that are happening right now, you know, what those people should do. I don't know. Yeah, a lot of my recent thinking and work has been really on this question. Like, what is it like to experience, this is what we call epistemic injustice or testimonial injustice. Like, what does that feel like? And then how do we, how do we respond to it? Um, and Tempest has really, really good thoughts on this. But one of the worries that being on the receiving end of persistent testimonial injustice is it causes self-doubt and one way to avoid that is what Mina said and that's community so like I feel like we've gone back about 40-50 years to the, the sort of consciousness raising movement where um, we had to get in groups of people who are having similar experiences and recognize that we're having similar experiences, right? That we're not making this up, that we're not crazy, what we call gaslighting. So I was having dinner with a friend the other night and we were talking about the sorts of microaggressions she experiences as a woman of color um, and a young scholar, right? The sorts of daily microaggressions she feels at the college. And one of the ways that we can support people like that is just by believing them when they tell us what happened and finding people who will believe us. So that's sort of the community message that I want to share is find, seek out people who will believe you and then reciprocate that. Believe them when they tell you. One of the worst things, even if in your mind your default attitude is to doubt the speaker, at least don't express it. So if you can, if one concrete thing I can suggest is if someone tells you and you're not quite sure if you believe them, at least don't express that you, you're not quite sure that you believe them, all right? So separate the sort of outward reactions to people's speaking of their experiences of marginalization, oppression, harassment from what you do on the inside. I guess one thing I'm thinking too, because your question in some sense is like, what do oppressed people? Perhaps this is your question. I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah, what do yeah, oppressed people those do? Those who are recipients and, of that ignorance. Yeah, right? right. And so I think, so I think partly because of. So I'm obviously more optimistic than Rachel is about closing this experiential <laughs> gap. You're an epistemic. Here's what I think. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'm not a bit small. Just, right. Um, yes, yeah, so oh, I have to think. Please. I have to think that. But um, but you know, I'm more seriously, um, you know, in the sense though too, because people who are among oppressed groups kind of have they have a privileged perspective in the sense that they're the ones. Ex- 
experiencing what it's like, there is a burden that comes with that. Because if you think of oppressed people as the people who have this experience, you know, the, in the first instance, and then somehow have to communicate it in the ways that I'm inclined to think that there are ways of communicating, then the burden on us, again, as a woman of color, um, you know, who is like first generation uh, immigrant, you know, then the burden in some sense, in some sense is on me, uh, and perhaps those like me to kind of share, find ways to share and communicate that experience. Um, but the problem, at least for me as a philosopher, uh, is that I don't know that philosophy per se, and I need to think more about this, is the most, is the best way of communicating. And I actually think visual representations, I think poetry, I think art more broadly are just better ways. But that means, and this takes us back to questions that Du Bois um, and others were conf confronting, is the role of of, of art in the movement, right? Where we have to take ourselves as like being part of that and see art as being essential to the creation of a just society because of its ability to communicate and cause these like experiential phenomenon. Do you all think that the the way that the media does things, the, even the way that we view alternative media is going to change through this presidency? And if so, how so? What, what I'm thinking is, you know, in so many ways, Trump said that the that the media was, was rigged in some way, right? That they were against him. And I saw a meme <laughs> of someone basically saying, you know, presenting facts about Trump's is, is rigging the election in some way, right? But particularly the New York Times, the Huffington Post is very adamant about Trump being a liar, for example. But we see that Trump is also going after the New York Times, right? There's been a couple of comments in the last few days that he he's tackled the New York Times. So there's also this concern where a lot of people have been fearful of comedians and also the press is how much is he going to come down on the press how much is free speech is going to be put into jeopardy but also particularly if if the media if the whole job of the press is to make us not so ignorant <laughs> what do you think needs to be need to be done in that regard but also when it comes to alternative forms of media particularly they have been vehicles that has allowed us to be less ignorant how do you think those are going to change during his presidency or how do you think they need to change during his presidency Rachel yeah so I mean I, I have many thoughts on this um, so I'll start with the media and I'm laying like I don't want to play the blame game but I'm laying a lot of blame at what the major um, network TV news cable news stations did and I want to read a little selection from Helen Longino's book The Fate of Knowledge this is page 133 uh, this is when she's speaking of her norms of social knowledge and she says nevertheless the advocates of a point of view and through them the point of view itself, may lose or even forfeit intellectual authority if their discursive interactions do not satisfy the second condition of uptake. That is, reiterating the same old complaint, no matter what response is offered, eventually disqualifies one as a member of a discursive community of equals. So I read this and I think about what happened in mainstream news with the presence of surrogates. So you take a look at a number of the Trump surrogates who are given equal speaking time. Even if they have a long history of lying, misleading, and bullshitting. Right? So they're still treated as a member of the discursive community of equals, as epistemic members in this deliberative democracy. Even when we know that they're lying and bullshitting and they keep being invited back and back and back. And so we get this odd false equivalency of we have to give voice. We have to treat, take seriously 
bullshit and lies. And that's wrong. You do not have a deliberative democracy when you include those sorts of voices. So I think the the news media has utterly failed in its journalistic duties in that respect. So that's why I think about what has to happen to media. But here's my big worry. Well, here's a big worry. I think academic freedom is about to be deeply under threat. And we're already starting to see ripples of this. There was a, a high school news story where an expert on the rise of Hitler compared Trump to Hitler and was suspended for that, for his teaching duties, right? He's an expert on this topic. He can back it up with evidence and facts. And yet that was deemed impermissible speech. What we're going to start seeing in our classrooms for those of us who teach issues of racism, of propaganda, of lying and bullshit, for example, like I do, is that students on of a particular ideological association and administrations are going to weaponize the language of diversity, inclusion, and respect to silence and exclude our criticism. So we have these public epistemic duties to speak what we take to be the truth, even if it has political import, provided that it's relevant to the course and that we can back it up with evidence. But that's going to come under threat in a big way. And the way that they're going to do it is by weaponizing the language of you're making people uncomfortable, you're silencing, you're marginalizing people who disagree with you. Mina, what is your take on mediums of, of knowledge, the media or the classroom or others? Well, I think in many ways we're experiencing some growing pains to do the change in the way that media functions and who it's created by now. And I actually don't, I, I realize that right now we're going through a tough time, but I, again, maybe I'm just like, wow, I feel so optimistic today. It's great. Um, <laughs> the sun is shining today, so I'm in a good mood. I don't know. Um, but uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, I think the truth is here. I, I, I'm worried about mainstream media. I, I actually felt like, so people might be worried, I guess, you know, uh, Trump supporters are worried that media was rigged in favor of Clinton or Sanders or whoever, but I'm, I'm worried that really, as, as Rachel pointed out, that the media was rigged in such a way that it favored a lot of apologists for Trump, even when they're factually being untrue, uh, you know, so I worry that it went that way. And I actually believe, I mean, even the New York Times, I think, you know, made a lot of mistakes where they didn't call Trump out often enough or strongly enough. So my worry is that actually mainstream media is just, you know, they're looking to get as many viewers as they can. And sometimes being contrarian isn't the way to do it, right? Uh, I, you know, I feel for the Times. They've lost a lot of subscription uh, holders over the years, right? Um, and so they're doing what they can, but that's an unfortunate circumstance. But where I do see hope is the fact that we have alternative you know, discussions, public discussions happening, information is being spread. So we have that, which is good. But on the other hand, you know, that means not only do we have people who are concerned, you know, with anti-racist movements and so on happening, we've got the alt-right happening as well, who are also taking advantage of the same platforms. But this is the kind of the growing pains, I think, of getting the citizenry more actively involved in politics today. And we have to just allow that this, there are going to be some bad side effects, but the hope is maybe through more engagement, there'll be like a slight upward trajectory. And we have to, right now, we're figuring out the norms. What are the social norms that ought to govern this kind of discourse? And unfortunately, things are not going really well right now. But I hope in like continuing on this discussion, maybe we'll make some progress. One of, one of my concerns has to do with memory. I mean, just two weeks ago, a lot of people was, was criticizing a lot of rhetoric that, that Trump has put out. But when I went through my YouTube feed, I was seeing kind of these mini documentaries about how Trump has rised as a businessman, right? The narrative is beginning to change, right? In which he 
is being praised. It's, it's kind of like, didn't you all, did you just forget what happened two weeks ago, two months ago? So my concern, one of my concerns is the media's media's lack of, of memory. But I'm also hopeful to mean in, in some respects, you know, I... I have a, you know, I have a passion for the public, right? Engaging with the public. And I think this is going to be a time where a lot of people are going to quote unquote, come out the closet, right? And what I mean by that come out of their philosophical, psychological, political sciences closet and begin to really engage with the public, because I think that's going to be needed, even street journalists. I mean, I think we need to continue to create kind of these alternative forms of media as a way. And, and, and with this also comes an obligation right that one also has to present the facts right because if not then we're also going to contribute to epistemology of ignorance as well but I think what this is going to do is call a lot of people to enter more into the the public realm to kind of add to to knowledge and I think that's I think that's a good thing so I completely agree um so I mean this is sort of what we're doing right now right I think that this this is what needs to happen that philosophers we have certain skills we've thought about certain issues pretty deeply um but I think we do need to do better at making clear how it can be useful, but also we need to be thinking about how to make it more useful, right? To sort of get applied, as it were. So I think, for example, a lot of the work on the epistemology of ignorance is focused on what it is, what produces the ignorance. And I'm really hoping that we start to think a lot more on what to do about it, right? Sort of think about the ways of overcoming the ignorance. So I'm hoping that this podcast of ours was a, a little first step. Yeah, I mean, I would want to add to that, I think. But I also think, you know, there's a few different parts. One is that we need to think more about how to overcome it, uh, the gaps, the epistemic gaps. And I think, honestly, we should look back to people and theorists that have participated in social movements. So I think looking at people who have done this before, they had these exact... So, you know, as I, I've just been, like, rereading King and Du Bois and Douglas over the last week or so. And, I, you know, there's just so much... Um, and I, I'm thinking about others as Audre Lorde. I think, you know, really turning to Audre Lorde as well. I think that we can look at these people and their work and their body of work and their attempt to grapple with these questions and take some lessons from it. So I think at this point, I would also want to call people to attention to social movements, the people of color, the women, LGBT community members, et cetera, that are, you know, have been fighting these fights. I think they have a lot of knowledge to spread and we need to take advantage of that. And as philosophers, you know, use our our, our ability for critical analysis to draw from these bodies of work to, to engage. But then the other thing I think that's also important is also acknowledging our limits in the sense that as philosophers, we may not have like, you know, all the tools to solve the problem. We need to be open to working with others, forming coalitions with people from other disciplines, from the public, from activists who are on the ground. I really just would like want to resist because Sometimes I think philosophers identify so much with the platonic idea of philosopher kings. Yeah. Like, we are not the ones who should be dominating this movement. Um, I think, again, I really want to endorse some kind of coalition building and working with networks that already exist to engage, as Rachel said, with the public and, you know, to do better on that front. So this this podcast is targeted towards philosophers, but not only philosophers, but also other folks. But most philosophers teach. There's also some teachers that's probably listening. It's been almost a week since the since the election results. As a teacher, can you give us some some advice for for teachers going back into the classroom? Of um, any strategies that you recommend? I don't even know, <laughs> um, because I'm I'm personally struggling so much with this. What do I do? How do I balance my respect for students, which I take very seriously, and my care for students with what I view as a duty to speak what I take to be the truth and what I take to be accurate and what I take to be well supported by evidence? 
So I think that we have to think very carefully about what that looks like to treat, for example, a pro-Trump student with respect while still being willing and courageous enough to challenge them. Mm-hmm. One thing I have noticed that caught me a little bit off guard is the students are worried about us too. And one thing that I'm thinking about is what are some ways that as instructors, teachers, professors, we can help them take care of us because it's hard for us to take care of them if we're not doing so well either. So I think let's think about how we can help our students, but also be open and willing to let them help you too. Yeah, so I think this is a question I've been grappling with a lot. I've been grappling pretty publicly in the sense that I've been having these conversations with my classes. Um, And I think one of the things, I don't know, I don't know the answer now because I too am battling and struggling with weighing off different obligations. You know, I've been really committed to the value of the Socratic method, which is asking questions. I have views about all kinds of things. As you said, I'm an ethicist, so I have all kinds of views about ethics um, and what, how our actions should, you know, what kinds of principles should guide our actions, etc. But I don't know that that necessarily is my duty typically but here's the thing i think that when we are in the conditions of what i would call following walter a supreme emergency then our duties start to change and you might say that with the rise of trump and with this racist you know a homophobic xenophobic ideology and agenda that we're in a state of emergency and i think that our duties may very well change under this state and so before maybe i could have been socrates asking questions pushing people in the right way but what i'm really grappling with now is if that's still okay or if i need to be taking a stance mind you for those of us who work and work that's anti-racist i do have my students read some of my work so they genuinely know where i stand do they know who i would vote for um they pretty much know that i had issues with all of the candidates so that allowed me a kind of neutrality in my dislike of everyone frankly uh sanders included to some extent so in a way that's given me an interesting way to kind of engage with them it's i've been critical of all of the candidates and it gives me a way to to be critical now that trump was president-elect that maybe this will give me a way without necessarily putting out like an explicit view but i'm not sure frankly i'm still grappling with it Um, But I think these are questions. So I guess what I want to say is we all work with wonderful students, thoughtful, reasoned, reflective, many of whom deeply care about the same things that we do. Minimally, I think we just need to engage them in this debate, like literally had a conversation with my students about what is the obligation of professors. And, you know, it was was something like a 70-30 split. I would say, you know, maybe like 70% of students thought that professors should actively come out and say that they're, you know, anti-racist, etc. The other 30% you know, didn't think that was the role of the professor, but minimally this is a conversation we need to have. So I think just asking the question that Maisha has asked us, I think minimally that's where we have to start. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate it. Be well. Yeah. <laughs> and after you're well, fight the power. You too. Thank <laughs> but you be so well. much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.